Chapters 2, 3, and 4 of the Library Assistance Manual. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Christina Bui. The Library Assistance Manual by Theodore W. Koch. Chapter 2. Organization of a Library. The organization of the average library consists of the following component parts. Number 1. Board of Trustees. The main function of the Board of Trustees is to look after the financial interests of the library to see that the buildings and equipment are properly cared for, and to decide broad questions of policy. Trustees should be, but are not always, elected from the elite of the community. It is expected that in them will be found a genuine culture, an appreciation of things pertaining to the arts and sciences, combined with the advantages of education, travel, and sufficient leisure to look after public interests. Cultivated men, says Edward Edwards, familiar with books from childhood, have usually a very inadequate perception of the toil and thought which have to be given to the good arrangement, the accurate cataloging, and the ready service of a library. What then is to be expected if a dominant share in the management of a library be placed in the hands of men with just enough of elementary education to bring into broad daylight the intensest ignorance in union with the most stolid self-conceit. A little bookishness in a committee man, said Justin Windsor, may be as dangerous as a sip from the poet's Pierian spring particularly if there is no deeper learning in any of his associates. He knows just enough of books not to know that he knows nothing of libraries. Number 2. The Librarian A librarian, said Henry Bradshaw, is one who earns his living by attending to the wants of those for whose use the library under his charge exists. His prime duty being, in the widest possible sense of the phrase, to save the time of those who seek his services. The librarian has been variously compared to the commissariat in the Republic of Letters, whose business is not to fight himself but to put others in fighting trim, or to the host at the banquet of knowledge who is assiduous in securing the comfort of the guest and in placing before each one just the kind of food he likes and requires. He knows that what is one man's meat is another man's poison. Enthusiasm for the work is a prime requisite in the librarian. Even a good staff cannot overcome the deadening influence of daily contact with a chief lacking in enthusiasm. To the librarian should be left the details of administration. The librarian is the executive officer of the board of trustees, and the latter, if wise, 
will look to the librarian for getting the results desired and will allow that officer as free a hand as possible. If the librarian is not capable of administering the library or worthy of the fullest confidence, the sooner one is secured who measures up to the standard, the better. Number three, the library staff. The duties of the staff vary with the size of the library. In the smallest libraries, the librarian may be the only one engaged in the actual work of the library. But in such cases, the library hours must be restricted to such as one person can take care of. The next step in growth is to have someone relieve the librarian at the desk and to do the more clerical work. Next comes special assistance to look after special tasks like cataloging and classifying, desk work, and so on. The staff, whether large or small, should consider itself responsible to the librarian and should not, except in extraordinary cases, go directly to the board of trustees with petitions. The librarian should always be the spokesman for the staff. Going over his head indicates a lack of sympathy and cooperation between the librarian and the staff that argues badly for the welfare of the institution. Qualifications for library work. The best preparation for library work is a thorough, systematic, general education. To this should be added a special preparation secured either through apprenticeship, a training class, or a regular library school. Different positions call for different qualities in assistance, but library service in general demands tact, perseverance, adaptability, habits of precision, and accuracy, with a fair amount of speed, ability to distinguish between essentials and non-essentials, and a strong desire to be of service. A certain familiarity with books and famous characters in history and in fiction is expected of everyone in a library. Personal neatness, good temper, and a sense of humor are valuable assets in this as in other lines of work. No one will succeed in library work who goes into it merely for the money that can be got out of it. Loyalty to the institution and its officers is essential to efficient service. If the assistant cannot feel the sense of loyalty, the sooner a new position is secured, the better for all concerned. Dignity, self-possession, and self-reliance are valuable qualities in any part of the library, but are especially needed by assistants at the reference desk. Qualities that unfit one for library work in general are physical weakness, deformity, poor memory, a discontented disposition, egotism, a lack of system in one's method of work, an inability or unwillingness to take responsibilities, a tendency to theorize, criticize, or gossip, inability to mind one's own business, fussiness, and long-windedness. One librarian advocates listing the virtues and personal qualities 
of the staff and apprentices by having a questionnaire like the following filled out for each assistant. Has she tact? Has she enthusiasm? Has she method and system? Is she punctual? Is she neat? Is she kind? Is she a good disciplinarian? Is she sympathetic? Is she quick? Is she willing to wear rubber heels? Is she a good worker? Is she accurate? Has she a pleasing personality? Has she a sense of responsibility? Is she patient? Is she courteous? Has she self-control? Is she cheerful? Has she a knowledge of books? Are her vibrations pleasant? Has she executive ability? Can she speak French, German, Spanish, Italian, Yiddish? Has she social qualifications? Can she keep a petty cash account? What are her faults? Mr. Herbert Putnam, Librarian of Congress, gives the following advice to aspirants for library positions. First, secure the best possible general education, including, if possible, a college course or its equivalent. Second, acquire a reading knowledge of at least French and German. Third, add to this training in a library school. Fourth, if a choice must be made between the special training in a library school and a general course in a college, choose the general course, but make every effort to supplement this by the special course, if only for a brief period. Fifth, if an opportunity occur for foreign travel, utilize it. Sixth, if you had not been able to contrive either a thorough general education or special training, your best opportunities in library work will be in a small library where your personal characteristics may be such as to offset these other deficiencies. Seventh, without at least a fair reading knowledge of French and German, you cannot progress beyond the most subordinate positions in a large library. Chapter 3. Book Selection and Buying Book selection makes the greatest demand on the knowledge and administrative judgment of librarians and is the question that produces the most friction between librarians and library communities. If the trustees define the general policy of the library, determine the amount to be expended on books, and approve purchases out of the ordinary run, the librarian should be considered as the one person best posted on the needs of the library, and as purchasing agent for the institution should be allowed to buy where he can do so to the best advantage. Of course, the problem is quite different in an academic library from what it is in a public library. Especially in the latter should the librarian be granted the utmost freedom in the selection of the general run of books. We are often asked, who seeks the books for purchase and how this is done, says Dr. A. E. Bostwick in the annual report of the St. Louis Public Library for 1911 through 12. About 10,000 volumes are issued from American presses yearly. 
not to mention those of England and other European countries. Of these, we can purchase only about 2,000 titles. Of the remainder, some are eliminated by their heavy cost, as in the case of editions deluxe, and most works intended for wealthy collectors, some because of their class, such as technical works on law and medicine, which we are leaving to the special local libraries devoted to these subjects, and some because they are obviously below standard, being either untrustworthy, trivial, or objectionable. There remains a very considerable number, any one of which we might purchase, but only a certain proportion of which we can buy with the funds at our disposal. From these we try to select the best, judging from the standpoint of a high-grade public library. Some of the considerations that affect our decision are first, public demand, to which we always give heed unless it is obviously uninformed. Secondly, a desire to strengthen our collection in weak points. And thirdly, expert advice, oral or printed, volunteered or specially asked. Here in St. Louis, we are profiting by the services of numerous experts in special subjects, which are freely given as a public service, and we scan carefully every bit of expert testimony regarding the availability of books contained in the bulletins of other libraries and in other current lists and bibliographies. Trade lists and catalogs of all kinds are checked up with our own to see what we lack, and the result is the assemblage of a list of wants far larger than we can purchase. The final selection from these is apt to leave behind some things that we ought to buy, but it is unlikely to include anything that could well have been left out, considering our special conditions and needs. The final word in selection rests with the committee of the board, but for ordinary current purchases, and unless some point involving the larger policies of selection is to be settled, this committee usually allows the librarian to exercise his own judgment. Besides the sources of selection already mentioned, books on approval are received in considerable quantities, sometimes being sent voluntarily by dealers or individuals, sometimes requested by the library. The librarian must develop a sense of proportion and beware of the library patron with a hobby and of the trustee who is interested in building up only one side of the library and of the scholar who thinks that only solid reading for the immortal mind should be placed before old and young. In buying for an average public library, the aim should be to choose general treatises rather than those covering only special phrases or special subjects. The special treatises would be the more desirable for a university library where they would be in demand both by faculty and students as authorities on detailed points, as aids, or as sources in further investigation. Too much money should not be locked up in expensive volumes that will be seldom used. The librarian should estimate the average cost of his books per volume and, except in the case of reference books, should not go too far beyond this average cost.
He should avoid partisanship and develop catholicity of taste and breadth of sympathy. He should try to have something on his shelves for every patron in town, real or potential, but should not allow the library to be drawn into any sectarian propagandist movement. He should avoid controversial works, sensationalism, and the latest fad, and put off the purchase of the book of the hour until he feels fairly sure that the demand for it will not die within the hour. The efficient librarian does not think too much of the sum of total accessions, but is mindful of the fact that it is quality, not quantity, that counts. It doesn't matter how many, but how many good books you have. This was said by Seneca, but the same truth has been stated by many modern librarians. I should as soon tell how many tons the books in the Astor Library weigh as to tell how many volumes there are, was the sage remark of Dr. Joseph G. Cogswell. Strength does not lie in mere numbers. This fact is as true of books as of soldiers, said Mr. W. E. Foster. One thousand carefully picked are worth two thousand assembled at random. Aids in Book Selection The chief aid in book selection for the average small public library is the ALA catalog. The first edition was issued in 1893 for the World's Columbian Exposition. It was planned as a guide for book buyers as well as for readers and as a manual for librarians in the matter of book selection. To a certain extent, it was hoped that it would take the place of a printed catalog in some of the smaller public libraries. By checking in the margin the titles of the books owned, it forms a convenient partial catalog of best books for any library. In 1904, a classified and annotated edition, thoroughly revised and brought down to date, was prepared for the St. Louis Exposition. This included 7,520 volumes adapted to public libraries as contrasted with 5,000 titles included in earlier edition. A supplementary class list of 3,000 titles covering the books issued between 1904 and 1911 was issued by the ALA in 1912. The ALA Book List, a guide to the best new books, has just completed its ninth annual volume. Various state library commissions have issued helpful lists. Wisconsin's suggestive list of books for a small library is a good specimen. The Fiction Catalog, published by H.W. Wilson Co., Minneapolis, is useful as a checklist and contains many excellent titles. In the same way, the lists of the 100 and of the 1,000 best novels issued by the Free Library of Newark, New Jersey, are worth studying. Various lists of best books, like Sir John Lubbock's famous 100 Best Books, or Dr. Eliot's Five-Foot Library, are to be found in a pamphlet, The World's Best Books, which is to be had free of charge from the Globe Wernicke Co., Cincinnati. 
For additional titles, see Aids in Book Selection by Alice B. Kroeger and Sarah W. Cattle, ALA Publishing Board, 1908. Book Buying If it is desired to buy a special list of books already selected, it is usually best to place the order with one of the large houses which make a specialty of library trade or with a local dealer if the proper service and discounts are assured. Cost of carriage may total up high enough to offset a special discount and so should be considered in comparing prices offered by two different dealers. In scanning a list of books to be bought, attention should be paid to number one, those titles which are to be had in reinforced bindings, number two, titles which are to be had in special editions, as in every man's library, number three, titles which are to be had from dealers in remainders and are likely to be offered at bargain prices. The list of editions selected for economy in book buying, compiled by Leroy Jeffers and published by the American Library Association, 25 cents, is well worth studying. The selection of books to be bought at any one time will be determined by the prices at which they can be secured and consequently it is desirable to constantly study dealers' catalogs. Worn copies of popular titles or copies that are loose in their bindings are not ordinarily wise purchases, as they soon require rebinding and thus make the total cost exceed the first cost of a copy in reinforced binding. Subscription books are rarely worth anything like the money asked for them. If wanted, they can frequently be bought from dealers in second-hand books, or from jobbers in remainders and surplus stock. Books should not be bought from traveling agents. There are only a few publishing houses who employ them who would not supply their books through their regular channels of trade. Editions deluxe are now generally understood to be for looks only, and library editions are frequently so called because they are for the private and not for the public library being put up in a way not warranted to withstand wear and tear. Accession Book The accession book, which corresponds to the invoice book of a business house, is the first of all records to be made of a book after it has been acquired by a library. The accession book aims to show the additions of each day in the exact order of their reception without classification of any kind. One turns it to learn what price was paid for a book, when and where it was bought, how much was paid for binding it, if it was bound after being acquired by the library, how much was paid for replacement if lost, etc. Each volume is entered on a separate line and secures a separate accession number. By means of this number, the history of any particular book can be traced. The accession book is the most permanent of the library records. Entries cannot disappear as from a card shelf list, and it is of the greatest value in case of books lost or destroyed by fire. 
Each book should be entered immediately after it is collated and found to agree with the order and bill. The entries must be kept up to date in order to avoid loss and confusion. An accession number should be given each separate volume, giving a single accession number to a set leads to endless confusion. A numbering machine will save time and help to prevent errors. Chapter 4 Classification Definition Classification consists of putting like things together. We do this every day, and the classification of books is only one special phase of this general process. Thus, a man who owns a hardware store does not place his goods helter-skelter, a stove, a box of nails, some saws, and then a furnace, but he runs over his stock and classifies it, putting stoves in one place, nails in another. By this classification, he gains two things. First, he can find any one thing he wants more quickly. Secondly, he can tell how much of any one article he has on hand, and so decide whether he must lay in a new supply. Likewise, the zoologist classifies all members of the animal kingdom so that he can learn what the different kinds of animals are and study the relationship between them. Without the help afforded by classification, he would be overwhelmed by the immense number of facts brought before him, and without the aid of classification, he would never have known of evolution, the guiding star of modern investigation. First Principles In our everyday life, we lose much time hunting for things which we have no definite place. We have put them in the place which was most convenient for us at the moment when we put them away. Think for yourself how it is with your knowledge. From observation, from conversation, from reading, you learn little about many subjects like electricity, botany, astronomy, or politics. But in this desultory way, you do not learn very much about any one of these subjects. Therefore, you do not feel any special need of classifying your information. But when you take up any of these subjects and pursue it seriously, you learn thousands of facts and relations, and then is the time that you feel the need of some plan of arrangement of your knowledge. Private versus Institutional Libraries One has the same experience in regard to books. A person having a library from 50 to 300 books does not feel the need of classifying them. The ordinary arrangement is based upon size, color, or convenience. The books in the average house are so placed as to look their best. The classification, as far as it exists, is an aesthetic one. The owner knows the exact appearance of every volume in his library, and when he wants Longfellow's poems, he can tell at a glance where it is. In a small public library, there is no occasion for all the history being in one place, or all poems in another. 
as the library grows, the aesthetic principle of classification can be followed until the owner can no longer readily remember how each book looks. But our institutional libraries contain so many books that the librarian cannot know them in the same way that he knows the books in his own private library. And consequently, he has to study the question of classification and devise a method by which not only he, but his assistants, and also such readers as have access to the books, can readily find them as wanted. Classification, the putting of like things together, would, therefore, mean in a large library, putting histories together in one place, the medical books together in another place, and so with all other distinctive subjects. Each of these large classes will, however, have to be subdivided. Thus, histories of Greece are put together in one place, histories of Rome in another, histories of the United States in still another. The subdivision in the larger libraries is carried still farther, and books on the period of the discovery of America are put first followed by books on the colonial period of the United States, the Revolutionary War, etc. United States history, if well represented, is classified geographically. This process of subdivision into separate groups of books on each state can be carried still farther if necessary. Advantages of Classification the following questions may arise. What advantages come from the classification and who are benefited? The advantages come to those having access to the books. If one goes to a library to get a volume by Arnold Bennett, it makes no difference to the individual whether the library is classified or not if he cannot go to the shelves and pick out the book for himself. Likewise, if he wants Young's astronomy, he will probably get the book more quickly if he asks the attendant to get it than if he tries to get it himself, supposing he does not have access to the shelves. But the time when the reader gets the most help from the classification is when he wants to examine a number of books on astronomy and can go to the shelves and find the books on the subject all in one place. Then he can easily find what different writers have to say about the habitability of Mars, or he can find what book appeals to him as being the most interesting and can borrow it for home use. Any investigator finds access to the shelves of a well-classified library and immense help. An aid to the librarian. Another person who is greatly benefited by the classification is the librarian and it is just as important that he be helped as that the reader be helped. He is, however, helped in a different way. He knows what the system of classification in use in the library is, and with the outlines of this scheme in mind, he goes through the library and finds out where it is strong and where it is weak, and can plan future purchases accordingly. If, for example, he finds on the shelves of little value on photography, he will make a note of it and buy more books on that subject when funds are available. If he finds that there is an undue supply of travel on hand, 
He will note that also and buy fewer books in that class in the future. Without the help of classification, the librarian would overlook many such irregularities. In an unclassified library, they would be discovered only through a long and tedious investigation. His only resource would be the catalog, and that is not so well adapted to answer such questions. Basis of classification. The next question is, what shall be the basis of classification? It is obvious that this basis should be sought in the character of the books themselves and should be applied with constant reference to the reader and his needs. In regard to the first point, character of books, we know that books have been written on all kinds of subjects, religion, law, history, medicine, etc., and that those subjects form the only rational basis for classification. A classification based on these distinctions is the only one that helps the reader. If a man comes to the library to investigate a particular point in medicine, it is clear that it will help him if he finds all the medical books together, rather than all the books grouped according to their date of purchase by the library. Present Tendency Many schemes have been devised for the classification of books, some very simple, others extremely elaborate. The present tendency is to adopt the more elaborate classification. Formerly, most libraries were not classified at all, but the books were arranged in the order in which they were received, the only grouping of the books being in such cases as based on size, folios in one place, quartos in another, in order to save shelf room. Assuming that the books in the library were numbered according to the date of their accession from 1 up to, say, 20,000, it is clear that the reader could find a book by a particular writer quickly enough by looking up its number in the catalog, but if he had a wish to consult 30 books on one subject, it would be a very tedious operation, and most readers would not take the time for it. Simple Forms of Classification The most common plan in English libraries is a modification of this scheme. The books are divided into about 10 classes, and the books in each class are arranged in the order in which they are received. The classes are distinguished by capital letters. An example said to be very common in England is as follows. A. Theology and Philosophy B. History and Biography C. Travel and Typography D. Law, Politics, Commerce E. Arts and Sciences F. Fiction G. Philology H. Poetry and Drama J. Juvenile K. Miscellaneous and Magazines An illustration of the way a book is marked in this scheme, B2574, might be Green's History of the English People. This book is marked 
B because it is a history. It is marked 2574 because there were already 2573 books in this class at the time this book was added. This mark, B2574, is a very simple one and to that extent satisfactory. The scheme is a great advance over the preceding one because it brings the books of a kind together. Since there are ten classes in this scheme, it is evident that if a reader wishes to see all the books on one subject, he will have to examine only one-tenth of the library instead of the whole of it. But even this is not felt to be minute enough. If the library contains 200,000 volumes, one class would contain, on the average, 20,000 volumes, which is altogether too great a collection to search through. If Green's History of the English People were marked B2574, the next book might be Robinson's History of Peru, marked B2575, which is of course a very different subject. The case is still worse in Class E, which includes fine arts, useful arts, and all the sciences so that a book on chemistry might stand between a book on medicine and one on Raphael. This would not satisfy the reading public of today, nor the modern librarian. The classes F, Fiction, and J, Juvenile, are not so bad. There is not so great a difference between the books in these classes. They are used more by people seeking recreation rather than by those looking for definite titles. Jacob Abbott wrote some 200 juvenile books, and many of these might be scattered among the large Class J. In Class F, fiction, the English, French, and German authors would be all thrown together. This would be a disadvantage for anyone desiring to read along a particular line. Open versus Closed Classification The question of open versus closed classification is an important one. By open classification, we mean one without minute subdivisions. An illustration of open classification is the scheme of 10 classes described above. As an extreme case of open classification mention may be made of the theological library in which only two classes were used. The one classes containing the books that were sound in their theology, the other the books that were unsound. At the present time, the tendency is towards close classification. It is a necessity in large libraries and an advantage in small ones. In this country, the two great authorities on classification are Charles A. Cutter and Melville Dewey. Both have devised and published schemes of classification which are generally recognized as having many excellent features. In both schemes, the classification admits of very minute subdivisions. Dewey says that if the library has only one book on a certain subject, that book ought to be put in its own special class. 
It does not matter if there is no other book in the class. No one can fully understand what is meant by closed classification until he has had considerable experience in classifying books. You can pick up the printed scheme of classification and run your eye through the numbers, but you will get comparatively little from them until you try to apply them. Minute bibliographical classification. The following is a very important distinction in regard to close classification, which should be carefully noted. It is one thing to classify books, but it is quite a different thing to classify articles in magazines for the bibliography of a subject. Magazine articles may be classified far more minutely than books can be. Take, for example, the Bibliographia Geologica. In which references are made to articles in geological magazines and publications of geological societies. Here, the articles are classified according to Dewey. Dewey's class, five five one, means physical geology. In this bibliography, there is a particular article marked five five one, seven hundred ninety five billion. Five hundred thirteen million, one hundred eleven thousand, forty-four. That is to say, the general subject of physical geology is subdivided in one trillionth parts, and this article is assigned to one of those parts. If one should apply for a library position and be told that he should have to classify the books as closely as this, he would probably never get the position. If he were given this article to classify, he would just as likely as not put it ten billion points out of the way. As a matter of fact, this bibliography is compiled by a number of experts in geology. There are similar bibliographies of botany, zoology, and other natural sciences, all minutely classified and all compiled by experts. The reason that books cannot be as closely classified as magazine articles is that they generally deal with broader topics. In the average library, it does not pay to classify books more minutely than is warranted by the general run of books in the class in which these books are to be assigned. In this regard, a distinction must be made between libraries. The Library of Congress has devised a classification of its own, which is very minute, and a number of classifiers are employed to look after the different fields in which they are more or less expert. In this way, classification can be carried to the extreme limit of closeness. Nothing keeps one more modest than classifying, for one is continually brought face to face with things that one does not know. And so many things of which one knows so little. The Dewey Decimal System. The decimal classification is used in this country and in Europe. It is suitable for both large and small collections of books and for indexing. In many schemes of classification, letters are used to denote the classes; in others, a combination of letters and figures. Dewey uses only figures. Dewey developed his system in 1873 and published it in 1876. Numbers of three figures were used 
to denote the classes. Since then, it has been found desirable to subdivide much more minutely, and this has been done with increasing minuteness. In the seven editions that have followed the one of 1876, a general outline of Dewey is here given. Zero zero zero, general works. One zero zero, philosophy. Two zero zero, religion. Three zero zero, sociology. Four zero zero, philology. Five zero zero, science. Six zero zero, useful arts. Seven zero zero, fine arts. Eight zero zero, literature. Nine zero zero, history. Each of these is divided into ten sections. Five zero zero, science. Five one zero, mathematics. Five two zero, astronomy. Five three zero, physics. Five four zero, chemistry. Five five zero, geology. Five six zero, paleontology. Five seven zero, biology. Five eight zero, botany. Five nine zero, zoology. Each of these is divided into ten sections. Five three zero, physics. Five three one, mechanics. Five three two, hydraulics. Five three three, pneumatics. Five three four. Sound. Five three five, light. Five three six, heat. Five three seven, electricity. Five three eight, magnetism. Five three nine, molecular physics. These sections are still further subdivided until the requisite degree of minuteness is reached. The system has various mnemonic features which are helpful. Every figure has a meaning. An alphabetical list of all these meanings is appended to the classification. Thus, after the word hydraulics is five three two. Showing where to look in the classification for this subject, all books on hydraulics receive the number five three two, and are together on the shelves. This fact illustrates one great advantage of the Dewey system: that as the library grows, the new books can be placed with the corresponding old ones without remarking the old ones. While in the fixed location system, the books are marked to certain localities, and when moved by reason of growth of the library, have to be remarked. 
This remarking includes not only the books but also the cards referring to the books. The remarking is very costly and very unsatisfactory. In Dewey's system, the books in any one class are arranged according to some method. In most classes, an alphabetical arrangement by the names of the authors is simplest and best. In some scientific classes, some librarians prefer the chronological arrangement. In any case, it should be clear and simple. Relative location. With a movable location, all new books fall at once into their proper places, like the cards which are added to a card catalog, and the newcomers push the other books along on the shelf, just as new cards push the others along in the drawer. The consequence is that a book which is here today may be on the next shelf in a month. Or in the next alcove in a year, and the local memory, which is a great help in finding books quickly, is disturbed. The only remedy that I can see for this is to substitute a subject memory for a local memory, to get a habit of thinking of a book as belonging to a certain class instead of as on a certain shelf. A much more rational memory, by the way. And then to make it very easy to find the classes, this last is not hard to accomplish. A class memory can be cultivated and may be assisted by local memory, which will find books by their position relative to other books, instead of by their position relative to alcoves and shelves, or doors and windows. C. A. Cutter. End of chapters two, three, and four. Of the Library Assistance Manual by Theodore W. Koch, recording by Christina Bui.